This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Some of the most baffling cases in crime history have included strange, threatening, or taunting communications from the alleged perpetrators to investigators who are working to catch these killers. Jack the Ripper, the Zodiac Killer, and the Son of Sam all left notes or mailed letters meant to taunt and confound law enforcement officers and the public. Even with written clues offered up by these serial killers, only the Son of Sam was eventually caught. There have been others who have left messages scrawled at crime scenes. The Lipstick Killer and the Manson family both left chilling messages for those who were unlucky enough to first discover their victims. But there are also lesser-known criminals who use messages to taunt and terrorize the families of their victims. This is the theme of this month's series, Taunting Terrors. First up, a young girl goes missing, and within hours, her abductor begins communicating with her family in a series of bizarre phone calls. This is the case of Sherry Faye Smith. It was almost the end of the school year for 17-year-old Sharon Sherry Faye Smith. She would soon be graduating from her Lexington, South Carolina high school, and the the end-of-the-year festivities had already begun. The last week of May 1985 was a particularly busy one for Sherry. She was in a flurry of activity, getting ready for the graduation ceremony set to take place on Sunday, June 2nd, and then she would be traveling to the Bahamas for her senior trip. With packing for her trip and preparing for the commencement, there was just so much to do. On the morning of Friday, June 1st, she met her boyfriend Richard downtown, where along with Sherry's mother Hilda, they went into the bank to purchase traveler's checks for the upcoming Bahamas trip. After leaving the bank, Richard and Sherry met another friend to travel together to a swimming party at Lake Murray. Sherry left her car in the mall parking lot to catch a ride with her friend. Sherry, blonde and pretty, was also a talented singer who had been asked to sing the Star-Spangled Banner at her high school graduation. She was friendly and outgoing, and friends said she often had a big smile on her face. She liked to crack jokes and had even been voted wittiest in her high school. Sherry and her family attended church together, and her father Bob served as a chaplain for the sheriff's department. She had a particularly strong faith and loved to sing in church and read her Bible. At around 2.30 on Friday afternoon, Sherry called her mother to say she would be leaving the lake soon and heading home. She was dropped off at the mall parking lot to pick up her car and arrived home just before 3 p.m. Her father, Bob, was in his home office and looked out of the window to see that Sherry had stopped her car at the end of their 750-foot driveway, just at the end of the tree line. He figured she'd probably stopped at the mailbox at the end of the road and would be driving up and bounding into the house shortly. She always came in and, if he was home, gave her father a big hug. A few minutes later, Bob realized that Sherry hadn't yet come through the door. He peered out the window once more and saw her car still sitting at the end of the road, the door open. That was odd, he thought. Something pricked his consciousness just for a minute, and a cold shiver went down his spine. He decided to walk to the end of the drive and see if maybe she'd had car trouble or stopped to talk to someone out of his eyesight, or any number of reasons that could have delayed his daughter. When he reached her little blue Chevette, he found the motor running and the driver's side door open, but there was no sign of Sherry. Looking inside the car, he saw that her purse and towel were still on the passenger seat. Then looking closer, he saw something that made his blood run cold. Sherry's medication was still in her purse. His daughter had a rare form of diabetes, They required her to drink large amounts of water frequently and take her medication on schedule, or she could become severely dehydrated, which could quickly become fatal. The sight of the car left running with the door open was worrying enough, but Bob knew his daughter would not have gone anywhere without her medication, or at least not willingly. Seeing no one, not Sherry or any other cars on the road, Bob Smith ran back to the house to call the police and report his daughter missing. Within an hour, 
the Lexington County Sheriff's Department had deputies and volunteers out looking for Sherry. The Smith home was located in a rural area of Red Bank, 10 miles outside the town of Lexington, South Carolina. The nearby woods were canvassed by land and air for any signs of the petite blonde. The governor's office sent a team from their emergency preparedness division to serve as a mobile command center. The mobile command center was housed in a large trailer with its own phone lines and radio communication systems. They parked it in front of the Smith's home, out of which they would run the search operation. No one had seen Sherry after she turned off Highway 1 towards her home on Platt Springs Road. Her boyfriend Richard had followed her that far and continued down the highway. There was no sign of Sherry after that. Her father and mother had seen her car parked at the end of the road, leading to their front door, but neither had seen Sherry. A single set of barefoot tracks was found leading to the mailbox, but they ended there. It was as if she had vanished into thin air. As night fell, Bob and Hilda Smith became frantic to find their daughter. Not only did they fear that Sherry had been abducted by someone out to harm her, but they knew without her medication, her medical situation was life-threatening all on its own. But still the minutes and then hours ticked by, with no sign of her. They could only hope that whoever had taken their daughter would contact them and perhaps demand a ransom. They were not wealthy people, but they would do whatever it took to get their daughter back safely. They waited anxiously for the phone to ring. The next day, Saturday, they got their wish. A call came in and a man said, I have Sherry. I want money. But it wasn't long before their hopes were dashed when investigators discovered that the phone call was just a cruel hoax. Saturday turned into Sunday, the day of Sherry's graduation. Instead of cheering her on as she walked across the commencement stage, Sherry's family and friends spent Sunday searching an ever-widening grid with still no luck. Then at 2.20 a.m. on Monday, June 3rd, three days after Sherry went missing, the phone rang in the Smith home. A male voice was on the other end. It sounded muffled, and the caller was obviously trying to disguise his voice. Hilda Smith answered the phone, and the caller informed her that he had information about Sherry and assured her that this call was no hoax. He described Sherry's clothing at the time she'd gone missing, a yellow tank top and white shorts over her two-piece black and yellow bathing suit. He then told her that a letter would be arriving in the mail between 1 and 2 p.m. that day. This confirmed that the caller knew something of the Smith's routine, or at least of the local area, as this was precisely the time their mail was delivered each day. He then described in detail what the letter would contain. He said that the top of the letter would be dated 6185, and it would also be marked with the time it was written, 3.10 a.m. He then unnecessarily told her that it had actually been written at 3.12 a.m., but he had rounded the time off. The caller also specifically mentioned Sheriff James Metz, who was leading the search for Sherry, saying, Tell him they are looking in the wrong place. He also instructed Mrs. Smith to tell Metz to go on the local television news station at 7 a.m. and call off the search. Law enforcement wasn't going to waste several precious hours waiting for the mail to arrive, so they woke up the Lexington County Postmaster and sent several officers to sort through the mailbags of all the mail that would be delivered to Lexington County that day. By 7 a.m., they found a letter addressed to the Smith family. The letter was then transported to the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, headquarters in Columbia. It was photographed by Lieutenant Rita Schuler, a special agent of the Forensic Photography Department. It would turn out to be a crucial piece of evidence, and Schuler would be instrumental in the Sherry Faye Smith case. She would later write a detailed account of her involvement in the investigation in a book titled Murder in the Midlands, from which I drew the timeline of events for this episode. The envelope, sent without a return address, was addressed to the Smith family and included a letter consisting of two lined notebook pages filled with what was later identified as Sherry's handwriting. The letter was dated June 1, 1985, as the caller had stated. There was also the time, 3.10 a.m., written at the top of the page. Then a title was written in large script across the top that made the investigator's heart sink. It read, Last Will and Testament. Sherry's final words, written on the page, spoke of her love for her family and friends 
and told them not to worry because I will be with my father now, she wrote. She asked them to remember the special times they had had together and not to let her death ruin their lives. Her thoughts, even in what must have been her final terrifying moments, were focused on others. She tried to comfort her family, saying that she believed some good would come from her untimely death. She also asked her boyfriend Richard to accept Jesus as his Savior. Sherry even apologized for the money that had been spent on the Bahamas cruise and asked that someone else please take her place. She told her family over and over how much she loved them, and though she knew they would miss her, they should stick together and, quote, not become hard or upset, unquote. Finally, she wrote, everything works out for the good of those that love the Lord. She signed it, All My Love Always, Sharon Sherry Smith. There was only one personal request she made in the letter. Sherry asked for a closed casket at her funeral. While investigators were meticulously studying the envelope and letter for any clues about who had taken Sherry, another phone call came into the Smith home. By this time, the Smith's home phone line had been set up to record calls in anticipation that the kidnapper might call again. This call came in at 3.08 p.m. on Monday, June 3rd. Sherry's older sister Dawn answered the phone, and the voice of the same man who had called previously asked to speak to Mrs. Smith. He asked if they'd received the letter, and if they now knew it wasn't a hoax. He would reiterate this several times during this call, and in each call afterward. Hilda Smith asked to speak to Sherry, but the caller's response to her was to demand she tell the sheriff to call the search off. Then he said she would get information about her daughter in two or three days. Hilda said she was worried because of Sherry's disease and asked if she was well and being taken care of. At that, the caller hung up. The call was traced to a payphone in a shopping center seven miles from the Smith's home. The man called again at 8 p.m. and asked if they had now received the letter. By this time, the family had been given a copy by the investigators. Hilda gave identifying details to the caller to let him know that they had, in fact, read the letter. She again asked him to let her know if her daughter was okay. She tried to appeal to the kidnapper's humanity, saying that he seemed kind and compassionate, and she just wanted to make sure Sherry was well. He told her that Sherry was drinking two gallons of water every hour and using the bathroom right afterwards. This indicated that he had specific knowledge about Sherry's medical needs. Hilda took this as a hopeful sign that her daughter was alive and letting her kidnapper know what she needed medically to stay alive. Then the kidnapper said to Hilda, Okay now, this has gone too far. Please forgive me. Have an ambulance ready at any time at your house. He rambled on for a few more minutes, not answering her when she asked what he meant. Instead, he repeatedly talked about how Sherry wanted her casket closed with her hands folded in front of her as if she were praying. He talked in circles when he was asked specific questions, and I can only imagine that staying on the phone with her daughter's kidnapper without gaining any helpful information must have been maddening. But Hilda Smith bravely soldiered on and tried to keep the man talking as long as possible. The call ended with more chilling words from the kidnapper. I want to tell you one thing, he said. Sherry is now part of me, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Our souls are now one. This call was traced to another payphone eight miles away. But once again, by the time police arrived, the phone booth was empty and the phone was off the hook. No usable fingerprints would be found on the receiver, and no one witnessed a man on the phone. The following evening, another call came in. This time, the caller wanted to give details of the abduction. He described how Sherry had been kidnapped at gunpoint while at the mailbox in front of her home. He again told of the letter being written on Saturday at 3.10 a.m., but now added that at 4.58 a.m. that same day, they had, quote, become one soul, unquote. When Hilda Smith asked what that meant, he did not answer. Once again, the call was traced to a payphone a few miles away, but did not yield any more clues. Finally, on June 5th, five days after Sherry went missing, another call was received by the Smiths. When it was answered, the caller immediately began giving directions to a location about 16 miles from their home in Saluda County. He directed them to a building, the Masonic Lodge, and then to go six feet beyond the backyard. We're waiting, he concluded. God chose us. 
the SLED criminal forensics team was immediately dispatched to the location. Jerry Faye Smith's body was found a few feet beyond the wood line, directly behind the Masonic Lodge, as the caller had described. She was fully clothed, but without shoes, and most of her jewelry was missing. There was already significant decomposition of the body, as it had been left out in the elements for at least a few days, when the summer temperatures had reached over 100 degrees. The medical examiner would determine that Sherry had probably died no more than a few hours to a day after she was abducted. Unfortunately, because of the condition of the body, an exact cause of death could not be determined. The examiner speculated that Sherry may have succumbed to her disease if she had experienced extreme dehydration, which could have led to cardiac arrest. But he also said it was possible that she died from asphyxia due to soft ligature strangulation or smothering. However, because her death occurred during an abduction, the manner of death would still be listed as homicide. Sherry's family was notified of this grim discovery, and the hope they had held on to for five days was shattered. Sherry had been so cruelly ripped from her family, during which time they had been taunted for nearly a week by her killer, giving them false hope that he might spare her life and let her come home. There were five days in between when Sherry Faye Smith went missing and when her body was found in the woods 16 miles away. During that time, her family had received several phone calls from the kidnapper, who asked for no ransom and made no demands for her return. It seemed he simply wanted to taunt them and let them know that it was he who had taken their daughter away for his own evil purposes. All the calls had been traced to various payphones just a few miles away from the Smith's residence, but the final call that gave directions to Sherry's body was placed over 45 miles away. The killer was obviously out of the immediate area. Investigators, however, remained hard at work seeking to identify him. Then a day after Sherry's body was discovered, the man phoned again, but this time the call came into Charlie Keyes, an investigative reporter for television station WIS in Columbia. He told Keyes that he wanted to turn himself in, but he was afraid and wanted to be taken alive. He gave details of the crime that only the killer would know to prove the call wasn't a hoax, but he would not give his name or location. He wanted the reporter to contact the sheriff to relay his desire to surrender to police. It seemed once again the killer was using others as pawns in his sick game. He told Keyes he would give him an exclusive interview and seemed to relish in the fact that he had personal details about Sherry and her family, such as which church they attended. He also gave the reporter a phone number that he said was Sheriff Metz's home number. He wanted Keyes to mention the phone number on the news broadcast that evening, and then he promised to turn himself in the following morning. That same evening, another call came into the Smith's home. This time, the caller wanted to talk to Sherry's sister, Dawn. He told her he was going to turn himself in the next day. He promised to send the family a picture of Sherry he said had been taken while she was standing at their mailbox. He said there was another letter from Sherry as well. In this long and rambling phone call, he tried to convince Dawn that Sherry had been resigned to her fate and cooperated with him when he ended her life. He told her that her sister had been suffocated by duct tape that he'd wrapped around her head. Even though he shared this horrifying detail, the killer said Sherry had been at peace as she died. Like I mentioned, the call is long and rambling, and the killer seems to enjoy stringing out the details for her sister to suffer through. All the while, he acts like he cares about Sherry and her family, and tries to make himself out to be a hero for giving them the location of her body so they could bury her properly. It's a disgusting call, and again, I can't believe the composure Dawn is able to maintain as she tries to keep the killer on the phone and get as many details as possible to help identify him. If you want to read the full transcripts of these calls, you will find a link in the show notes. They can be found in the book Murder in the Midlands by Rita Schuler. This last call was traced 50 miles away in Great Falls, South Carolina. The following two days would be particularly difficult ones for the Smith family, as Sherry's visitation service and funeral were to be held on Friday, June 7th and Saturday, June 8th. The funeral began at 11 a.m. on Saturday, and just after the family returned from the cemetery, their phone rang once again. The killer again asked to speak to Don. He said he hadn't had the strength to turn himself in as he promised. 
He bragged that he'd been at the funeral, but the officer stationed there had been too dumb to spot him. He hinted that he was planning to kill himself, but said he would call her again the following Saturday, which would be the two-week anniversary of Sherry's death. The call was traced to Augusta, Georgia, about 60 miles away from Lexington County. After this last communication, the call stopped. FBI profiler John Douglas was called in to try and help the investigation by creating a profile of the most likely suspect. Douglas said that they should be looking for a white male in his late 20s to early 30s. He would be single and a blue-collar worker, perhaps working in the field of electrical contracting. Douglas thought that the caller had knowledge of phone systems since the calls seemed to be electronically distorted. He also thought the man most likely lived in the local area and was of above-average intelligence. He believed he'd have a criminal record and was probably overweight and unattractive with low self-esteem. His repeated phone calls to the family, as well as the reporter, was motivated by the need to feel powerful and in charge, Douglas said, something he'd probably not experienced in his life up until that point. Some speculated that the killer was not heard from again because he'd done what he'd hinted at to Don, taken his own life. But unfortunately, this would turn out to be incorrect, as just days later, he struck again. On Friday, June 14th, two weeks after Sherry Faye Smith was abducted from Lexington County, Deborah May Helmick was playing outside of her home in a mobile home park in Richland, South Carolina, about a half hour away from Sherry's home and east of Columbia. Deborah May was the oldest of Deborah and Sherwood Helmick's children. Deborah May, age nine, had a six-year-old sister, Becky, and her baby brother, Woody, was only three. On that Friday afternoon, their mother had just left for work. Six-year-old Betty went along for the ride when a family friend, Vicki Orr, gave her a lift to her job. Deborah May and three-year-old Woody stayed home with their father, who just arrived from his construction job. The kids continued playing outside in front of the home, while Sherwood went inside and sat down just a few feet away in the front room of the trailer. A neighbor, Ricky Morgan, was inside his own trailer a few doors down and across the road from the Helmicks when he saw a silver-gray car drive up in front of the Helmicks trailer and stop. A man got out and grabbed Deborah May around the waist from behind and picked her up as she kicked and screamed. He threw her into the car before speeding away. It all happened in an instant, and Morgan ran out of his house and alerted Sherwood Helmick that the man's daughter had just been kidnapped. Helmick hadn't heard his daughter's screams, since he'd been in the front room, where the air conditioner was humming loudly, drowning out any other sounds. Now hearing Morgan yelling for him, he ran outside and found that his son Woody, terrified, had crawled under a bush to hide. Deborah May was gone. The men jumped in their vehicles and raced in the direction the car had driven away with Deborah May, but it had also disappeared. Morgan had only been able to get the first letter of the license plate, D. The sheriff's department was immediately contacted, and they began a ground and air search for Deborah May, described as nine years old with blonde hair and blue eyes. Investigators couldn't help but wonder if the man might be the same person who had abducted Sherry Faye Smith. Both girls were blonde, both had been taken from outside their own homes during the day, and exactly two weeks apart. As the only witness, Ricky Morgan gave valuable information to help with the investigation. He'd seen not only the car, but also the man who kidnapped Deborah May. The kidnapper was described as a 30 to 35-year-old white male, approximately 5 foot 9 inches tall, with a protruding stomach and a short beard, mustache, and brown hair. The car was described as a 1982 or 83 silver-gray Grand Prix or Monte Carlo with red racing stripes. Little Woody was too young and too traumatized to give much information about the man who'd taken his sister. He kept repeating, The bad man said he was coming back to get me. The one promising piece of evidence investigators had in the abduction and murder of Sherry Faye Smith was the letter sent to her family by the killer. The two-page letter was combed over for clues, and through the use of a special device, it finally yielded a promising lead. FBI scientists used an ESDA, or electrostatic detection apparatus, to identify indentations left behind on the letter's notepaper. With this technique, they were able to identify a few words 
and more importantly, a phone number indented on the page. So to explain this a little more clearly, you have a notebook or a notepad with several pages. You write on one page, and it may leave indents on the page underneath. This ESDA device can read those indentations. They were unsure of a couple of digits of the phone number they found, so it took some time to decipher the complete number. But once they did, it led them to a local retired couple. Of course, these people didn't fit the description or the profile of the person they were looking for, but they wanted to speak to them to find out if they could make any connection between the phone number and their suspect. They interviewed the couple by phone and discovered that the phone number they'd found belonged to their son in Alabama. He was in the military and living in that state. They checked the son's alibi and were quickly able to rule him out as a suspect. An FBI agent decided to give the profile description to the couple to see if it matched anyone they might be familiar with. After they heard the description, they both said it sounded very much like a man they knew named Larry Jean Bell. Bell had been a frequent house sitter for them and would have had access to the notepad they kept in their kitchen and used to jot down phone numbers and other info. At about this same time, just a week after Deborah May's kidnapping, the phone rang in the Smith home around noon on a Saturday. Don answered the phone, and as he'd done before, Sherry's murderer was calling her family collect. In yet another cruel twist, this time the killer had the operator announce, I have a collect call from Sherry Faye Smith. Don accepted the charges and took the call. He hadn't called for over two weeks, but the conversation started in a familiar way. He said, you know this isn't a hoax, right? The caller tended to repeat words and phrases in an annoyingly predictable way. But what he said next was new. God wants you to join Sherry Faye, he told Don. It's just a matter of time. This month, next month, this year, next year, you can't be protected all the time. Then he asked her if she'd heard of Deborah May Hamrick, mispronouncing the missing nine-year-old's last name, Helmick. After Don clarified who the caller was referring to, he proceeded to give her directions to a location outside of Gilbert, South Carolina. Deborah May is waiting, he said, before hanging up. Sheriff's deputies from Lexington County and the sled team rushed to the wooded location described by the caller, where they quickly located the body of little Deborah May Helmick. It would take some doing to positively identify the little blonde girl as Deborah May. Just like with Sherry, Deborah May had been exposed to the elements for days, and the body was so decomposed it had to be identified by a scientific analysis of the skull. As Deborah May didn't have dental records to work from, an image of the skull had to be compared with photographs of the little girl. The images were superimposed over one another to precisely compare several parts of the skull to the photo, the teeth, point of the chin, bridge of the nose, size and shape of the eye sockets, etc. A forensic anthropologist then determined that the skull matched Deborah May with a reasonable medical certainty. Additionally, the clothes found on the body were matched to Deborah May's at the time she went missing. She was still wearing her white shorts and her short-sleeved lavender t-shirt. Strangely, there were two pairs of underwear on the body, a pair of cotton ones that her mother positively identified as Deborah May's, and a pair of silk bikini underwear that did not belong to her. Again, a definitive cause of death could not be determined due to decomposition, but the autopsy report listed suffocation as the most likely cause of death. Residue from adhesive tape was found on the victim's hair, and this was determined to be from either duct tape or masking tape. Sheriff Metz announced at a news conference that they now believe Sherry Faye Smith's killer and Deborah May Helmick's were most likely one and the same. Meanwhile, FBI investigators were busy looking into their possible suspect, Larry Jean Bell. Investigators had tied the clues extracted from the last will and testament letter sent to Sherry's parents and interviewed the retired couple Ellison and Sharon Shepard, who lived in Saluda County. The Shepards, who were frequent travelers, had a house sitter who fit the FBI suspect profile named Larry Jean Bell. Larry Jean Bell was born on October 30, 1949, and was one of four children. The family moved frequently, and Larry attended high school in Columbia, South Carolina, before moving once again to Mississippi, where he graduated. Larry Bell was considered strange, even as a young boy, 
with some who knew the family describing Larry as falling into an odd trance-like state. As a teen, he allegedly began molesting female relatives. His record of assaults against women got even worse as he reached adulthood. He returned to South Carolina in the early 1970s, where he began working as an electrician. At the age of 20, he met and married a 16-year-old girl who gave birth to a son. In 1972, the couple was living in Rock Hill, and Bell was employed at Eastern Airlines. By 1976, the couple had divorced, and his ex-wife moved with their son to another state. In 1975, Bell was arrested after he tried to abduct a woman from a parking lot at Knife Point and was charged with aggravated assault and battery. He was sentenced to five years in prison, but was given the option of paying a $1,000 fine and having the remainder of his sentence suspended, after which he was placed on five years probation. In October of that same year, he once again tried to abduct a woman after threatening her with a gun. As he attempted to force her into his car, she struggled with him and managed to get away. The woman was able to identify him, and he was later arrested. In June of 1976, he pled guilty to assault and battery. Because he was still on probation for the first offense, he was given five years in prison. While incarcerated, he was required to see a psychiatrist. He was given a favorable review and was released after serving only two years. In the late 1970s, Bell was in and out of mental facilities a couple of times. During one of these hospitalizations, he was diagnosed with a personality disorder of a, quote, psychosexual nature, unquote. In 1976, a psychiatrist who assessed him deemed Bell to be a danger to the public and at a high risk to reoffend. In October 1979, he was caught making numerous obscene phone calls to a 10-year-old girl over the course of several months. Even with his prior offenses, time in prison, and psychological assessment as a danger to the public, Bell was given only a two-year suspended sentence and placed on five years probation for this offense. Ellis and Sharon Shepard described their house sitter Larry Jean Bell as 36 years old, 5 foot 10 inches tall, slightly pudgy, with reddish-brown hair and a reddish-brown beard and mustache. This description closely matched the man seen kidnapping Deborah May Helmick, whose body was found just three miles away from the Shepherd's home. Many points of the FBI suspect profile also fit Bell. He was just over a little older than Douglas predicted, mid-30s instead of early 30s. He had worked as an electrician. He was currently single, and his build and general appearance matched as well. He also lived locally with his parents at their Lake Murray residence. After interviewing the Shepherds on June 26th, investigators were able to piece together a timeline of events. The Shepherds had left on an extended vacation on May 13th. They were gone for three weeks and returned on Monday, June 3rd. Sherry had been abducted on Friday, May 31st, and most likely killed on Saturday, June 1st. The Shepherds' house was isolated on a large plot of land in Saluda County. Detectives thought they might find evidence left behind if Sherry had been taken to the Shepherds' home before she was killed. When the Shepherds returned from their vacation the Monday after Sherry's abduction, Bell picked them up at the airport. Soon after they got into the car for the drive home, Bell told them the news about the missing girl, Sherry Faye Smith. He kept bringing up the subject throughout that evening until Sharon Shepard began to think that he was obsessed with the case for some reason. She also noted that when she'd first met Bell, he'd called her Mrs. Shepard. Later, he began calling her by her first name, Sharon. But after they'd returned from their trip, he began calling her Sherry. He had never called her Sherry before then, and she thought this odd as well. That Wednesday, a neighbor came to their home to inform them that the Smith girl's body had been found just three miles away, behind the Masonic Lodge. Bell had left the previous day to return to his parents' house, located on Shoal Island at Lake Murray, the same lake where Sherry Fay had gone to the swimming party the day she was kidnapped. The following Wednesday, which was June 5th, Bell returned to the Shepherds to drive them to the airport. They were leaving again, and Bell was to house sit for them once more. They were gone this time from June 5th through June 24th. Deborah Fay was kidnapped from the Shiloh Trailer Park on Friday, June 14th, just a few miles away from the Shepherd residence. Investigators would also discover that Bell's sister and brother-in-law owned a topsoil business that was located at a sand pit 
directly across the road from Deborah May's trailer park on Old Percival Road in Richland County. The last thing the investigators did before ending the interview with the Shepherds was to play them a portion of the phone call the kidnapper had placed to the Smith home concerning the abduction of Deborah May Helmick. They positively identified the voice as belonging to their house sitter, Larry Jean Bell. In the early morning hours of June 27th, the Sheriff's Department set up a roadblock near Bell's parents' home at Lake Murray. At 7.30 a.m., they spotted Bell's car approaching the roadblock as he was leaving to work. As they asked him to step out of the car, the first thing he said was, this is about those two girls, before calmly asking, can I call my mama? Larry Jean Bell was taken into custody and questioned while the Shepherd's home and Bell's parents' home were searched for evidence. Bell was told that they had proof that he was responsible for the kidnapping and murder of both Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick. They showed him the last will and testament letter that had led them to the Shepherds and to him. They showed the composite sketch made from Ricky Morgan's description of the man who kidnapped Deborah May from the trailer park, and they played for him the tapes of his voice on several calls to the Smiths' home, giving details of his crimes and providing the location of the bodies of both girls. In response to this damning evidence, Bell responded, That's not the Larry Jean Bell I know. Sheriff Metz, who Bell had often mentioned in his calls to both the reporter and the Smiths, was called in to convince Bell to fess up to the murders. You know for a fact that's you on the tapes, he told Bell. Bell finally admitted, There's no doubt about it. Ever what's in me doing this, or I did this terrible thing, it's just not right. God didn't put me here to take somebody's life. I know and you know what happens to me now. They're going to go for the death penalty. Bell then asked to speak with Sherry's family, and hoping that having her family in front of him would motivate him to fully confess. Authorities asked the Smiths if they would meet with Bell. They agreed. That night, Don and Hilda Smith arrived at the sheriff's office. Besides Bell, the Smiths, the prosecutor, and Sheriff Metz, also present were FBI profiler John Douglas and a handful of other officers. Bell's statement to the Smiths was half confession, half non-confession, using words like, if I did this, and I can't believe I could have done this terrible thing. He finally conceded, addressing Don, they have the evidence against me. I feel terrible about this if this was directly the result of something bad in me. If God chooses that I end up going to court and being put to death, that's just something I have to do. Don and Hilda Smith were positive the man sitting before them was the same man that had tormented them with phone calls after Sherry's kidnapping and murder. There was no doubt in their minds. Bell did most of the talking and wouldn't directly answer their questions, but rambled on with non-statements. Finally, after nearly an hour, Sherry's family had had enough and got up to leave. Bell, incredibly, asked them if they'd be open to talking with him again if he remembered anything else. They didn't answer him and simply left the room. The search warrants of the Shepherd and Bell homes yielded more evidence. They found the original sheet that matched the indentations on the last will and testament letter. It had been on a notepad that the Shepherds had kept near their phone, with phone numbers and other information for Bell while they were on vacation. Hair and fibers found in Bell's room and bathroom at the Shepherd's residence were consistent with those taken from Sherry's body. Two blood drops on shoes found in Bell's closet were found to be human type A blood. Sherry's blood was type A. They asked Bell to allow them to collect blood and saliva samples, but he refused. Remember, this was well before DNA testing was available. Even so, prosecutors thought they had gathered enough evidence to charge Bell with the crimes. He was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Sherry Faye Smith the same day he was taken into custody. The next week, he was also charged with the kidnapping of Deborah May Helmick. He would also ultimately be charged with her murder once evidence was collected to make the prosecutor's case. The grand jury would indict Bell on August 12th, and he would be charged with capital murder and found eligible to receive the death penalty if convicted. While Bell was awaiting trial, he did a lot of talking to inmates, correctional officers, and pretty much anyone within earshot. Officers said he liked to be the center of attention, but it also seemed like he was trying to make a case for the insanity defense, 
Bell began telling people that he was receiving visions from God. He said God was, quote, zapping down messages, unquote, to him because he was the most gifted man in the world. Bell underwent psychological examinations to see whether he was mentally competent to assist in his own defense. State hospital examiners found him mentally competent, and his trial date was finally set for February 10, 1986, when he would be tried for the kidnapping and murder of Sherry Faye Smith. Jack Swirling was counsel for the defense, while Donnie Myers would present the state's case. Myers was an experienced death penalty prosecutor. Swirling was a highly successful defense attorney, but he had his work cut out for him trying to defend Larry Jean Bell. Not only was the evidence stacked against Bell, but he'd made many damning statements implicating himself in the crime. The prosecution's case was strong, and it seemed Bell tried to throw the judge, jury, and witnesses off track by repeatedly causing interruptions during the proceedings with his outbursts. Swirling tried to help his client by bringing witnesses in to present a case for mental illness. Bell's behavior in court was, perhaps, designed to illustrate this claim. Bell was put on the stand to testify in his own defense. However, he refused to sit because he said there were no chairs at the gates of hell, so he would remain standing. He was asked to state his name and his age. He refused to state his age, saying, silence is golden a phrase he would repeat whenever he didn't want to answer a question. His attorney asked Bell to answer some basic questions about his upbringing, where he was born, his parents' names, and the like. Bell used this as an opportunity to ramble on for close to two hours with many irrelevant facts and stories from his life, as if he were writing an autobiography. Swirling objected whenever the judge tried to cut Bell's answer short, saying that part of his defense was based on the jury seeing just how the defendant responded to routine questions. He often made no sense, and his answers went around in circles. Bell's attorney thought witnessing this would prove to the jury that Bell was suffering from a mental illness. One example of Bell's rambling answers came when he was asked if he'd seen Sherry Smith on Friday, May 31, 1985. Bell first wanted to know if Swirling was asking if he saw Sherry physically because, quote, there are visions and there are physical things, unquote. When Swirling answered that yes, he meant physically, Bell responded, no, this is very bizarre, very unusual. So I had a vision of Sherry Smith, and I shall not explain it because the family is present and that is creeping over into the personal life and to me here. They have been through enough and silence is golden. When asked about the abduction of Deborah May Helmick, Bell said he'd watched someone else kidnap the child, quote, in a vision, unquote. During the prosecution's cross-examination, Donnie Myers asked Bell about his prior hospitalizations and asked if he had not had previous assessments by psychologists. Bell confirmed that this was true. Myers then read from past reports where Bell had told two doctors he'd made up stories of having visions in order to escape punishment by the court. Bell admitted that this was also true. When Meyer asked about specific visions regarding Sherry Smith and Deborah Helmick, Bell continually answered with the phrase, Silence is golden. On February 23rd, two weeks of testimony finally concluded with closing arguments. The state summed up all the evidence against Bell, while the defense took a surprising tactic. Swirling stood before the jury and said, I will tell you right now that the state has proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Larry Jean Bell is guilty of kidnapping, and the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, they got the right guy. But, he said, while Bell was guilty of Sherry Smith's kidnapping, the state could not prove that he'd committed murder. Sherry Smith could have died as a result of her illness, he argued. But Swirling still needed to explain Bell's confession to Don on how he'd wrapped duct tape around Sherry's head and suffocated her, even going so far as to say he'd watched her die. That, Swirling claimed, could have been the delusion of a mentally ill man. He asked the jury to find Bell guilty of kidnapping, but mentally ill. Swirling knew that even if the jury found Bell guilty of both the kidnapping and murder, but also conceded he was mentally ill, this would save his client from the death penalty. Immediately after Swirling finished his closing statement, Bell jumped up and began speaking nonsense again. He asked to take the stand, which of course the judge refused. He was told to sit down and remain quiet, or be returned to his cell, to which he responded, quote, Legally, in the eyes of God, I have already been there over seven months. So in my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling, unquote. While everyone was still puzzling over this statement, 
Belle blurted out, Your Honor, I would like to ask Don Elizabeth Smith to marry me. The judge called for order and again admonished Belle to stay silent or be removed from the courtroom. Belle continued to argue with the judge over nonsense. He was finally removed to his cell, and the proceedings continued without his presence. The jury retired to deliberate on February 25th. After less than one hour, they reached their verdict. Larry Jean Bell was found guilty of one count of kidnapping and one count of murder. The following Tuesday, the jury reconvened to deliberate his sentence. Bell's past incidents of violence against women was presented with three of his former victims testifying. A portion of the last phone call to Don Smith was played for the jury, in which Bell had threatened that she could not be protected all the time, and showing that he was a continued danger to society. Don testified during the sentencing phase how Bell had terrorized her and her family for weeks after her sister's kidnapping and murder. When she stepped down from the stand to return to her seat, Bell grinned and waved at her. In what could have only caused both the judge and jury to let out a long, exasperated sigh, Larry Bell was called to the stand by his attorney. He replied to even the most basic questions with his usual long, nonsensical answers. Then he called out across the courtroom to Don Smith, Look into my eyes, my special angel. Will you marry me, he said. The jury was sent out of the courtroom. Bell's lawyer again asked the court for another exam to determine his client's competency, which the judge again declined, stating, Mr. Bell is continuing in his own self-serving ways to try and convince the jury that he has some type of mental problem. The jury was given two options to consider in sentencing, life imprisonment or death by electrocution. On February 27th, after two hours of deliberation, they reached their verdict, sentencing Larry Jean Bell to death. A four-day trial for the kidnapping and murder of Deborah May Helmick began on March 23, 1987. This time, perhaps sobered by his time on death row, Larry Jean Bell had nothing to say. The trial was concluded quickly, and he was found guilty of both charges after a 90-minute deliberation. His sentencing phase took place on April 2nd, and after only one hour, the jury handed down Bell's second death sentence. His date of execution by electric chair was set for May 1987. But after all his appeals were finally exhausted and his final execution date had been set for October 1996, the state had added the option for death sentences to be carried out by lethal injection. Even so, Bell chose the option to be electrocuted because, he said, the electric chair was made of the same true blue oak as Jesus Christ's cross. While on death row, Bell continued to be a pain in the ass, according to correctional officers and other inmates. He screamed nonsense at all hours of the day and night, smeared his feces on the walls, and said he couldn't flush his toilet because it contained holy water. They were glad to see him go when he was finally escorted to the death house on October 4, 1996. Larry Jean Bell, who couldn't stop talking nonsense through a dozen days of his trial and a decade sitting on death row, went to his death without uttering any final words. He spent his last moments strapped to old Sparky before being declared dead at 1.12 a.m. Sherry Faith Smith's father, Bob, marveled at his wife's ability to live out her Christian values by forgiving their daughter's murderer when she went to meet him after his arrest. But Bob remained angry at the killer and at God for several months before he was able to realize that part of his anger was for himself. He felt he'd let his daughter down when he hadn't been there to protect her. He realized that he had to forgive himself in order to move on. He says his work as a chaplain for the sheriff's department took on a new meaning when he was called to help console victims' family members. Instead of Chaplain Smith, he was now known as Sherry's daddy. Those he prayed with realized he personally understood their pain, which allowed them to open up and grieve or be angry and express any range of emotions and know that they were truly heard. Sherry's mother, Hilda, has been asked to speak to various groups about how she was able to survive the loss of her daughter through her strong faith in God. She works in a ministry that serves crime victims and has written a book about her daughter called The Rose of Sherry. In July of 1986, Dawn Smith won the title of Miss South Carolina and went on to represent her state in the Miss America pageant the following September. She placed as a second runner-up to Miss America. She has also written a book, an autobiography, 
titled Grace So Amazing. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Don't forget, you can become a patron of Once Upon a Crime for as little as $2 per month, and you'll receive bonus episodes, exclusive patron gifts, and more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime for more details and to sign up. Thanks. You can find links in the show notes to our social media, resources used in each episode, and links to our sponsors and discount codes. You can also get all the information on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia, and our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.